Then it grew into a central structure from which the relevant Christian religion spread through surrounding regions. So it became kind of a hub which Christianity emanated out. Now, we know the arguments against the Pauline authorship of 2 Thessalonians and also of Colossians. The letters to the Ephesians, the matter is even more clear-cut. Majority of critical scholars convinced that Paul didn't write this letter. Before jumping on the question of authorship, we should begin once more with the situation lying behind the letter. Unlike with the other letters, Pauline Corpus, the occasion for Ephesians is notoriously difficult to determine. So why he wrote this letter? We do learn that Paul, or whoever wrote this letter, was writing from prison to Gentile Christians. That's evident in chapter 3, verse 1 of the letter to the Ephesians. There's some question, though, concerning where the epistle was sent and for what reason. Why do we say that? Well, most English translations indicated that the addressees, the persons receiving this letter, are the saints who are in Ephesus. That's how he opens in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are also faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, so most English translations indicate people who are receiving the letter are the saints who are in Ephesus. But the words in Ephesus are not found in the earliest and the best manuscripts of this letter. And if you notice, when I read that introduction, it didn't say anything about emphasis. It said, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints, does it say to the saints in Ephesus, to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, they are following the best manuscripts that do not have those two words in the text. Most textual experts think that the words were not in the letter originally but were added later by a scribe after the letter had been in circulation for a time. Now, if that's the case, if those two words in emphasis weren't originally part of the letter, but were added later, okay, that makes Ephesians kind of a circular letter. What do I mean by circular? In other words, it was meant to make the circuit of a number of Pauline churches. It was said to the saints who are faithful, but not to the saints in any particular location. So it could go to Ephesus, go to Corinth, okay? So it was meant for anybody who would be considered saints who are faithful. Now, that kind of a letter would have been copied in several of the places that it was received including the city of Ephesus. What we think happened is that some copyist in Ephesus 
decided to personalize the letter by adding the words in Ephesus to the addressees. Why would he do that? Well, uh, so when the Ephesian Christians read it, they would think it was written in particular to them. So now you have both this scribe's copy of the letter when he inserting in Ephesus, and other copies that lack the words in Ephesus. They're circulating around. And later copies reproduce the letter. Some reproduce it in Ephesus, some reproduce the letter without the words in Ephesus. Originally, then, the letter may not have been sent to a particular congregation but to a number of congregations throughout Asia Minor. And the overarching purpose of this letter to the Ephesians, where it was written, is to remind its Gentile readers that even though they were formerly alienated from God and his people Israel, even though they were formerly alienated from God and his people Israel, they have now been made one through the work of Jesus. What do I mean by one through the work of Jesus? They've made one with the Jews through Jesus' work of reconciliation. To reconcile the Jews and the Gentiles through work of reconciliation, and he's made them one with God through his work of redemption, saving them. And he points that out in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. So the reason he's writing this letter, okay, is to say that even though in the past they were alienated from God and his people Israel, they have now made one through the work of Jesus, made one with the Jews, Jesus' work of reconciliation, he made one with God through his work of redemption. Specifically, Jesus' death has torn down the barrier that previously divided Jew and Gentile. And what was the barrier that divided Jew and Gentile? Circumcision, food, diet. That's the sign of what, though? The law. The law. The law was the barrier between Jew and Gentile. So both groups now are absolutely equal. Jews and Gentiles can live in harmony with one another without the divisiveness of the law. Chapter 2, verses 11 to 18. The Jew and Gentile made one, because what divided originally now is no longer there. And then, secondly, Christ has united both Jew and Gentile with God. Uh, chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. 
And only have believers died with Christ, they'd also been raised with him to enjoy the benefits of a heavenly existence. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And so Jew and Gentile are united with one another and with God. Now this is the mystery of the gospel. It was concealed from earlier generations. It has now been revealed to Paul and through him to the world. What is the mystery? That Jew and Gentile are one with each other and are one with God. Now the second part of the letter, chapters 4 to 6, consists of exhortation to live in ways that manifest this unity. So if we're one with one another, one with God, we manifest it in the life of the church, chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. It's manifest in the distinctiveness of the believers from the rest of society. Chapter 4, verses 17. Chapter 5, verse 20. It is to be evident in the social relations of fellow Christians. That is, in their roles as wives and husbands, children and fathers, slaves and masters. Okay, the letter closes with an exhortation to continue to fight against the forces of the devil that are trying to disrupt the life of the congregation. So keep fighting against the forces of the devil that are trying to disrupt your life as a congregation. Chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. And then Paul has the final closing statement and benediction. Chapter 6, verses 21 to 24. Now, once again, we have to ask the crucial question, was this letter actually sent by Paul? Now, broadly speaking, Ephesians may sound something like Paul would have written. The allowance has to be made, of course, for his character as a circular letter, in which the author addresses no specific problems, such as moral failings or false teachings, and so he doesn't offer any specific solutions. There's some scholars that argue that Paul would not have written such a letter, you know, because there's nothing, you know, to goad him to write the letter. But then how can we know? You know, for the most part, it was a reason that prompted him to write most of the letters. But uh, why, why isn't it possible he could have written a general letter that would apply to many of the congregations that he founded. <clears throat> so the real difficulty with Ephesians is not with its occasion, of course, but with the details of what the author actually says and the way in which he says it. And that was the case also with Second Thessalonians and Colossians. Whereas the writing style of the Colossians appears to be non-Pauline, the style of Ephesians is even more so. No one who reads this letter in Greek can help but be struck by its incredibly long sentences, 
when measured against those written by Paul. Again, this is what we ran into Colossians, right? It's a long sentence that had to be broken up in English. In fact, the opening thanksgiving in this letter, 12 verses long, one sentence. Can you imagine that? I mean, you have to take about four breaths. Then, this is not bad writing style, it's just simply not Paul's. Father, I don't know if this is relevant, but I'm just thinking, couldn't that be the way a scribe takes it down, or has that ever been discussed? I mean, he is dictating these letters, right? Well, when I should. Oh, that's true, yeah, that's true. When I should have even Paul, you know, there's somebody, a, a disciple of Paul, uh, how he's doing it. We know Paul certainly is dictating something because he indicates that he's signing off on it. So it means, you know, somebody's written it for me. I've looked it over, just like we do at an office, you know, the secretary types something, but goes and it goes out, put your name on it, you own it. And so I'm, I'm behind this, right? It states, okay. Okay, uh, there are differences in style and vocabulary suggesting someone uh, Paul wrote it. Someone trying to imitate the letters of Paul, but not with complete success. Now, to examine the contents of Ephesians, we can look at one particular passage that's central to the overarching theme of the letter, <coughs> and whose ideas appear to resemble those that Paul sets forth some of his undisputed letters. Now, what's the passage in question? Chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. It discusses the conversion of its Gentile readers from their earlier lives to the salvation they've experienced in Christ. Okay, and here you find a number of important Pauline themes here. A person's separation from God before being converted to Christ, spoken of his death. The dead, you know, before uh, being converted to Christ. The devil is designated as the ruler of the power of the air. All of these you will find in uh, chapter 2. Reference to death is verses 1 to 2. The devil designates the rule of the power of the air. Chapter 2, verse 2. The grace of God brings salvation through faith, not works. That's very cool, right? Chapter 2, verses 8 to 9. And the new existence leads to a moral life. Chapter 2, verse 10. Okay, so we're combating like this. You don't have to follow the laws and you can be immoral tend to be immoral Moses. Now, salvation should lead to a moral life. Now, all of that's definitely Pauline material. But there are peculiarities here as well, as we see when we dig deeper into the text. The first and most obvious problem concerns the status of the believer, which is described in a way that's strikingly similar to what we found in Colossians. Even though Paul's undisputed letters are quite emphatic that the resurrection of believers, even in a spiritual sense, has not yet happened. The author of Ephesians pronounces that God made us alive together with Christ 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verses 5 to 6. So this view of the Christian believer is even more exalted than the one in Colossians. The words the author uses of the believer's status mirrors those he uses of Christ himself. It's almost putting the believer on the same level as Christ. He says, God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he's put all things under his feet, and made him and made him made him the head over all things for the church. So according to Ephesians chapter two, believers are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, above everything else. Not only are you up there, but you're, you know, you're rubbing elbows with, with himself. Now, can this be really the same author that castigates the Corinthians for maintaining they had already come to be exalted with Christ, therefore already ruling with him? That's what he's, he's railing against the Corinthians for. Now, all of a sudden, he's saying that they are ruling together with Christ above all things. Another interesting difference from Paul's own letters is the way the author of Ephesians in chapter 2 conceptualizes works. Now we know in Paul's gospel, Gentiles are made right with God, not by doing the works of the law, but through faith in Christ's death. And so when Paul speaks about works, he's referring to doing those aspects of the law that make Jews distinctive as the people of Israel. What works? Circumcision, kosher food laws, things like that. Those works gain you salvation. This was the, the Jews' thought. Ephesians, though, no longer refers to the Jewish law, but speaks instead of good deeds. Interestingly, later, the author of James countered a later version of Paul's gospel that insisted that faith without doing good works was adequate before God. What does the letter of James say? Faith without good works. Okay. It appears the author of Ephesians understand works in this later non-Pauline sense. Now, just as the notion of works appears to have lost its specifically Jewish content, not just following the law, but doing good things, so too does the author's own former life in which he engaged in these works. Now, we go back to what we, we uh, spoke about in the introduction. Paul himself spoke proudly of his former life as one in which he had kept the Jewish law better than the zealous Pharisaic companions of his youth. And he said he was, followed the law. He was blameless in keeping the law. In his own words, with respect to the righteousness found in the law, I was found to be blameless. It says that in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6. So Paul's conversion is not uh, away from a wild and promiscuous past to an upright and moral present. It was from one form of religious, rigorous religiosity to another. So Paul wasn't going from an immoral life to a moral life. He says, before the law, I was blameless. And then, of course, 
you know, he keeps saying that he was blameless also because when he did fail, he performed the sacrifices that made him righteous again. So, now what about this author of Ephesians? Evidently, he didn't conceive of Paul's past in this way. Because according to him, all of us once lived among them, meaning the pagans, in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses. So he has Paul saying here that I once lived in the passions of the flesh, following the desires of the flesh and senses. Paul never says that. He says he followed the law. So it is true that Paul himself occasionally speaks of having been subject to the law of sin, and then having done the things that he knew he ought not to have done. He mentions that in Romans 7, chapter 7. But in his undisputed letters, the extent of his transgressions involves such things as coveting. Romans chapter 7, verse 7, 8. Not the wild and dissolute lifestyle of the pagans that he sometimes maligned. In terms of his lifestyle, Paul described himself as living blamelessly. But not the author of Ephesians. That's not what he says. He talks about, you know, living uh, the passions of the flesh like the pagans did. He never says that about himself. Also, the letter to Ephesians also lacks some typically Pauline doctrines, such as justification by faith and the nearness of Christ's return. And those are typically Paul, justification by faith, saved by faith, not by the law, by works. And also the nearness of Christ's return. It's definitely in 1 Thessalonians. Despite a similarity to, to Colossians, okay, it presents a different view of the sacred secret or mystery revealed in Christ. In Colossians, you remember, God's long-kept secret is Christ's mystical union with his followers, that we were one in Christ, one with Christ. That's in Colossians. Here in Ephesians, he says it's the union of Jew and Gentile in one church. So the mystery revealed in Christ in the Colossians is the union that Christ has with his followers. In Ephesians is the union of Jew and Gentile in one church. He says that in chapter 3, verse 6. Father, I'm sorry, would you just give that distinction again, please, that the union with Christ in Ephesians was with Jew and Gentile, and how was it written before? Union of Jew and Gentile in one church. And in this community, okay, Jew and Gentile are one. That was the mystery that Christ revealed. In Colossians, the mystery that Christ revealed is Christ's union with his followers. His mystical union with his followers. Ephesians is the union of Jew and Gentile in one church. He says that in chapter 3, verse 6. Colossians, reference there is chapter 1, verse 27. So, who then was the author of this letter? Why did he write it? Once again, our historical curiosity is stymied by a lack of evidence. The trail is cold. Clearly, the author was a member of a church that was committed to Paul's understanding of the gospel. But he evidently lived at a later time, perhaps near the end of the first century. When some of Paul's views had developed directions that Paul himself had not taken. For example, with respect to what it meant to be saved apart from works. 
or would mean apart from the law, doing things that the law directed. Whereas here in Ephesians, it's from doing good deeds. Well, the author may well have had access to other letters written under Paul's name, because there are similarities between Ephesians and Colossians, including the way they open the letter and the way they close the letter. Their views of being already raised with Christ, and their instructions to wives and husbands, children and fathers, slaves and masters. Ephesians and Colossians have that uh, commonality. Okay, so possibly that an unknown author concerned with tensions that erupted between Gentiles and Jews and the churches that he knew in Asia Minor wrote to affirm what he saw to be the core of Paul's message. And he saw that core as that Christ brought about a unification of Jew and Gentile and a reconciliation of both with God. So the reunification of Jew and Gentile and a reconciliation of both Jew and Gentile with God. And that all members of this Christian church should respond to their new standing in Christ and embracing and promoting the unity provided from above. They should evidence that unity they have with one another and with God. More than any other disputed letter, except possibly Timothy and Titus, Ephesians seems to reflect a time in church history that's later than Paul's time. Why do we say that? Because it's reference to apostles and prophets as the church's foundation. And that would imply that these figures belong to the past. The church is founded on apostles and prophets, not to the author's own generation. The Gentile equality in Christian fellowship is no longer a controversial issue, but an accomplished fact. And that is struggling for Jews and Gentiles struggling for standing in a church. Judaizing interlopers no longer question Paul's state on circumcision. That seems to indicate that the work was composed after Jerusalem's destruction that eliminated Jewish influence in the mother church. Another difference is that Paul uses the term church, ecclesia, E-C-C-L-E-S-I-A. He uses that term church. When he does, he always refers to a single congregation, Galatia, to the church in Galatia, Corinth, to the church in Corinth. By contrast, the author of this letter to the Ephesians speaks of the church collectively. As an institution, encompassing all individual groups. So this view of the church as a worldwide entity also points to a time after the apostolic period. section chapter 5 verses 21 to 33. 
just going to read it. <clears throat> just pay attention. Okay, this, the whole section begins with this. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be to be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. As the church is subject to Christ, so let wives also be subject in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. Even so, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. But no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is a profound one. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay. Now. Okay, this passage which offers Paul's view of marriage is situated within a larger context. Chapter 5, verse 21 to chapter 6, verse 9. And it sets forth a list of household duties that exist within a family at that time. The list is addressed to wives, as we heard, verse 22. The husbands, verse 25. Then later on in chapter 6, verse 1, to children. Chapter 6, verse 4, to fathers. Chapter 6, verse 5, to slaves. To masters. Chapter 6, verse 9. And there are two similar lists in the New Testament. One in Colossians, the other in the first letter of Peter. But the Ephesians list is the only one to open with this strange injunction. How does it open with? For it talks about any individuals that says, be subject to one another out of reverence or fear for Christ. That's the headline statement. Okay, be subject to one another in fear for reverence for Christ. Now, taking the traditional household list, Paul challenges the absolute authority of any one Christian group over any other. Husbands, for instance, over wives, as fathers over children, or masters over slaves. So it establishes a basic attitude required of all Christians. What's that attitude? Of giving way out of mutual obedience. Okay. And that attitude covers all he has to say, not only to wives, children, and slaves, but also to husbands, fathers, and masters. He starts it off, and the thing he says, mutual submission is an attitude of all Christians. Because their basic attitude is that they reverence Christ. So that mutual giving way is required of all Christians, even of husbands and wives as they seek holiness together in marriage. 
It's in spite of the traditional family relationships which permitted husbands to lord it over their wives. So, this whole thing, framing the whole thing that he's going to say to husbands, wives, children, fathers, slaves, and servants, slaves and masters, is this thing, be subject. In other words, give way to. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. So that mutual giving way is required of all Christians. Right of husbands and wives, children and fathers, slaves and masters. Now, given the fact that all Christians have been admonished to give way to one another, it comes as no surprise that a Christian wife is to give way to her husband, as to the Lord. Verse 22. What does come as a surprise, at least to the ingrained male attitude, that sees the husband as supreme lord and master of his wife, that a husband is to give way to his wife. That follows from that general instruction that Christians are to give way to one another. So the instruction is not that the husband is the head of the wife, which would be the way in which males would prefer to read and cite the text, but rather that in the same way that the Messiah is head of the church, is the husband the head of his wife. For a Christian husband's headship over his wife is in the image of and exemplified by Christ's leadership over the church. The Christian husband's headship over his wife is in the image of and exemplified by Christ's leadership over the church. So in a Christian marriage, spouses are required to give way mutually, not because of any inequality between them, and not because of any subordination of one to the other, not because of fear, but only because they have such a personal unity that they live only for the good of that one person. So mutual giving way, mutual subordination, mutual obedience are nothing other than total availability and responsiveness to one another so that both spouses can become one body. It's not a question of superiority, but how each best give way or serve the other. Now, the way Christ exercises headship over the church is set forth in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 45. Here, Mark says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom or redemption for many. So service is the Christian way of exercising authority. Ephesians chapter 5, 25 says, It was thus that Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her. So there, a Christian husband is instructed to be head over his wife by serving, giving way to, and giving himself up for her. Headship and authority modeled on those of Christ does not mean control, giving orders, 
making unreasonable demands, reducing another human being to the status of a servant, or even worse, a slave to one's every whim. And Shivan authority means service. So what Paul says here is that the Christian husband, head of the family, becomes the first servant of his wife. So he's talking about uh, the love of husband and wife, just as the husband is to be the wife as Christ is for the church. Well, Christ is one that uh, served the church and came to serve, not to be served. Verse 22 there in the chapter, enjoin wives to be subject to their husbands. Verse 25, enjoin husbands to love their wives. When you get to verse 33, the order is reversed. First commands that husbands love their wives and enjoins that wives reverence their husbands. Now, it's reverence for loving service and response to it in a love is giving way. So the church's love and giving way to Christ is won by a, a lover who gave and continues to give himself for her. So that's Paul's recipe for becoming one body. How do you become one body? By joyously giving way in response to and for the sake of love. Now, three reasons are given here for husbands to love their wives. All of them basically the same. Why should husbands love their wives? They should love their wives for they are their own bodies. Wives are their own bodies. Second reason they should love their wives is that a husband who loves his wife loves himself. Third reason, the two shall become one body. Husband loves his wife. There's a, a great deal of evidence in Jewish tradition for equating a man's wife to a man's body. And as to flesh out of it, the first thing is love is always creative. The love of Christ brought into existence the church and made its believers members of his body. The love of Christ that brings the church into existence makes us believers members of his body. In the same way, the mutual love of a husband and wife brings such a unity between them that in this image of Christ and church, she may be called his body and his love for her may be called love for his body or for himself. So the mutual love of husband and wife brings such a unity between them that in the image of Christ in the church, she may be called his body, and his love for her may be called love for his body or for himself. Second thing, he who loves his wife loves himself. That's a paraphrase of that great commandment from Leviticus that Jesus cites, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So as all Christians are to give way to one another, so also each is to love the other as himself or herself, including husband and wife in marriage. 
Well, Christians are to give way to one another. So each person in a marriage is to love the other as himself or herself. Finally, like the two become one body, Christ chose the church to be united to him as body is to a head. He loved the church and gave himself up for her. And the church, in turn, responds to this love of Christ in reverence and giving way. So Christ, who loves the church, and the church who responds in love, constitutes one body, the body of Christ. Just as Genesis said, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and the two of them become one body. Husband and wife become one body in marriage. Paul, in verse 33, returns to and demands that husband and wife live up to this very meaning. The union between Christ and his church provides an ideal model for human marriage and for the mutual conduct the spouses within marriage. So for Paul, marriage means the union of two people in one body. It's a formation of a new covenant pair. It's the union of two people in one body, formation of a new covenant pair, which is a gift of both God who created it Christ who established it and the love he has for his church. So the Christian marriage between a man and a woman becomes the prophetic symbol of the union that exists between Christ and his church. So in the Bible, covenant love is defined in terms of obedience service, and loyalty. That's how covenant love is expressed in terms of obedience, service, and loyalty. Not in terms of interpersonal relations or affection. And the letter to Ephesians says that the love that's demanded in Christian marriage is that kind of love. Obedience, service, and loyalty. This first love is mutual giving way. as mutual obedience. So the love of the spouse in a Christian marriage is a love that does not insist on its own way. Corinthians? So a love that seeks to give way to the other is not one that insists on its own way. It's a love that doesn't seek to dominate or control the other spouse. Rather, it's a love that seeks to give way to the other whenever possible so that the two persons become one body. As a result of that giving way to one another. And we know there are individuals whose goal in life is to get their own way all the time. The New Testament proclaims there is no place for such individuals in a Christian marriage. That's not to say there's no place in a marriage for individual differences. Only the spouses who value getting their own way always and dominating their spouses never give way never become one person with anyone become one body with anyone in a christian marriage love requires not insisting on one's own way christian marriage consists of a mutual empathy with 
compassion for the needs, feelings, and desires of one's spouse. And a mutual giving way to those needs, feelings, and desires when the occasion demands for the sake of and response to love. Sexual love will not lead two people to become one body. It's mutual giving way, obedience and reverence for the other. Okay, love in a Christian marriage, secondly, love is mutual service. All Christians were called to imitate Christ who came not to be served, but to serve. And it can't be anything else in Christian marriage. In such a marriage, there is no master only mutual servants seeking to be of service to one another so that each may become one with the other. Christian spouses are called in their marriage both to be imitators of Christ their Lord and to provide a prophetic symbol of his mutual servant covenant with his church. So for Christian spouses, their married life is where they are to encounter Christ and become holy. Thirdly, the love that constitutes Christian marriage is steadfast and faithful. Ephesians instructs a husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church, and for the wife to do the same. And how does Christ love the church? Well, as Hosea loved Gomer, steadfastly and faithfully. So a Christian husband and wife are to love each other faithfully. This mutual faithful love makes Christian marriage exclusive and permanent. Therefore, an indissoluble community of love. That indissolubility is a quality of Christian marriage causes a quality of Christian love. Christian marriage is always a challenge to be faithful and loving. So Paul ends up saying this is a great mystery. What's a great mystery? That Christ chose the church to be united to him as a body to a head. Mystery is that he loved the church and gave himself up for her. Mystery is that the church responds to this love of Christ in reverence and giving way. Christ who loves the church and the church who responds in love thus constitute one body, the body of Christ. So the great mystery is that as Christ and his church are one body person, so also a man and woman become one body person, marriage. So, in terms of this superiority, the whole section, you know, people go into, well, by the way, why be submitted to your husbands? Wait a second. There's a opening sentence there. Not just for relationship of wives and husbands, but for fathers and children, slaves and masters. What's the overriding principle? You'd be subject to, give way to, okay, uh, to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there's no question of domination, lording it over anybody. It's like trying to outdo one another as servants. When all you're concerned about is not your personal fulfillment, but the needs of others. Okay, that makes those two people, if that's the way they relate to one another, they become one. And we often talk about people are married a long time, and one starts a sentence, the other can finish it. Or they can look at each other and they know what each other is thinking. They are that much one because 
you know, their relationship is one not of inequality. It's not one of uh, someone being superior to the other, uh, one being lord over the other and the other being submissive. No, that's not it. Christ came to serve, not to be served. Okay, that's the relationship of marriage. Husband and wife are not to be lords over each other, but to serve one another, to give way to one another. And that's what makes the two one, one flesh. It's not the union of themselves physically or sexually, but it's the union of oneself out of service and love and obedience and reverence for one another. So that, that gives you a different take on that reading. It doesn't make you as afraid to preach on it. You realize that this is uh, you know, the instruction of Christ. Uh, it says that, you know, this is the way that uh, he, he loves his church. He gave himself up for us. Didn't come to lord it over us, but he came to serve us, not to be served. A lord, some of the lords over they want to be served by others. You know, I'm superior, I'm more important. Christ did not come, he came to be a servant, to be themselves for others. That's a relationship all Christians should have with one another. To give themselves to the other, servants to one another, give way to the needs of others. Any questions on that? Hopefully, well, Father, just, just one one quick thing. First of all, my wife finishes all of my sentences. But, <laughs> but, she tells you she tells you what you're thinking, right? <laughs> right. Um, I just have a question about just a general question. I just need a long answer. But so we're, we're questioning the authorship here. So is it is is it generally regarded that this was this was Paul in this part of the letter or was it edited? Uh, I'm sure it was edited, but the thought certainly would have been Pauline. That's what makes the letter accepted by the church in its canon. Because even though we may question the authorship, whether it was Paul or a disciple of his, it certainly reflects Paul's thinking. And remember in Corinthians, he talks about, you know, uh, all of us are different parts of one body and, you know, one, one part of the body can't take off on its own and try to uh, do things. You know, you only function, well, you only function as one when everybody works together. And each one, you know, gives way uh, you know, to the functioning of the other. And, and it's pretty much the same idea here. You know, you all have oneness in a marriage. If one person is, you know, dominating the other person, there's no oneness there. It's the same as the parts of a body. As a oneness there, they function and work together, cooperate with one another. So that's why, uh, as I said, the church accepts this as canonical. It's part of our orthodox faith. Uh, it would be great if we could say definitely Paul wrote it, but you know, when we look at the letter, we see certain inconsistencies, differences, language, etc. We say, okay. Some of the things reflect the later time. The church is founded in apostles and uh, leaders like that. Okay. Anybody Thank have any? Good, not at all. Any questions? All right. So you're off next week. Happy Ash Wednesday. Happy Mardi Gras. Uh, and then uh, two weeks from tonight will be the midterm exam. It'll be, I'm sure, like three questions out of five. It'll be posted on Popoli. And if it comes here, if you need a hard copy, I'll have a hard copy for you. And, uh, so.
some blue books or green books, whatever they have now. But uh, yeah, if you have any questions over the next week or so about material, if you're going over things you're not quite sure whether you got it right, just email me and I'll get back to you, okay? Great, thank you. All right, okay. And all safely. Don't dig out too much next Thursday, Tuesday. Hmm. Uh, like you were teaching the uh, Trinity there for a second. Equality and. Yeah, well, unity, one substance, yeah. Uh, the whole thing, I know that passage uh, isn't to say, how's it look at the wise and say, to hear what Paul said? He's submissive, he said, fair to me. No, it's not. It's like, he said, we used to be subjective or give away servant to one another. It's not only true of our relationship, but all the relationships in the community. Families, customs and wives to their children. Same thing as all masters of the play. Hi, gents. Good eye. Good. You want this week? My, yeah, I do. Of course. Yeah, thank God. Yeah, it's going so quickly. Uh, sure. This is under my car the whole day. I had to radiate all my coupon. Oh, don't delay too much. That's all. Luckily, it wasn't so nice. I mean, it's good. Oh, no. All the plastic stuff. Nice. Well, I'm going to head out. See you back, Dan. Thank you.